Beloved, good morning. Welcome to a new semester. Thank you for joining us for this class. I've entitled Loving the Least of These, Reflecting on the Merciful Heart of God in a Fallen World. So you can expect what we're going to be doing together in the class. Here's the description on the nifty, handy APF brochure that we produce for everybody. So if somebody visits Wallace, grab them and make sure they see this in addition to brochures on home groups and such. But here's our course description. We will survey how the Bible answers questions such as, who is my neighbor? Who's my brother and sister? What are the particular temptations to loving my neighbor, to loving my brother and my sister? Who are people in need and what needs especially move the heart of God? And how does God want me as an individual and us as a church to address them? Above all, how do we in the church live out and in love and unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace? So that's where we're going in the course. We're going to uh, sort of play off at the beginning this final judgment scene from Matthew 25, and we'll get there eventually. You have a very full handout. I want to put all the scriptures in front of you. Never accuse me of sparse handouts, although today's sermon handout is pretty sparse. But anyway, So let me uh, offer prayer for our time together. Father, what a privilege to gather together. I thank you for the precious and dear saints of Wallace Presbyterian Church. They're so precious to you, Lord. They're yours. And they've won hearts and uh, won places in Janice and my hearts. I love these dear people. And it's uh, just a, a precious calling to gather at this hour and look at your word. We're going to look at some pretty serious and heavy things this morning. It's in there for our good, to help, to encourage, to bless, to warn, to arrest us. And so where we're sleepy, awaken us, please. And where there's reason to be encouraged, do so by your spirit. Above all, take the word of God, plant it deep in us, uh, inflame our hearts with greater passion for that which is of great concern to our God, transform our minds, we might take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, thinking your thoughts after you, being kept from lies and deceptions and all the stuff of self that would lead us in a, a direction of, away from you. So in your mercy, come by your spirit and teach us and help us. And we thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson one, Jesus points us to the least of these. We will begin looking at our central text in Matthew 25 in a moment, but I want to give the larger biblical context for this text. And that is, somebody read for us the first little paragraph under A. Read loud so that those on the, uh, listening on the radio might be able to hear. Anyone, just jump in. <clears throat> what, is on God's heart, what is important to him as he thinks? His glory to be reflected on earth by His people. What does that look like? We find out in His self-revelation the ways He acts, the oh, what He says, whom He looks upon with favor, what He judges in the end. So I'm kind of getting really, really basic here. What is important to the heart of God? Why do we need to ask that question, y'all? Joe? It needs to be important to us. Because, because that's got to become important to us. We want to move in sync with the living God. And life suffers 
And God is not glorified to the degree we're not moving in complete concert with the heart of God. So this little thing, what does God judge in the end, what does that tell you? What God chooses to judge in the end tells you what? The thing that's most important to him. It's like, okay, this professor, you can guarantee this is going to be on the final exam. He really cares about this. It's going to be on the final exam. Beloved, you and I will have a final exam. We will stand before the living God and give an account for everything we do think and say. That's what we're, part of what we're going to discover this morning. So tease it out a little bit more. Somebody read the next two sentences for us. <clears throat> Okay, I'm not saying true doctrine is not important. True doctrine will enable you to do deeds of mercy for the right reason. But the final judgment looks like God is looking for how our behavior conformed to his will. Again, true doctrine is important. You all know that. So in view of the alienation plaguing this fallen world, God seeks the reconciliation of all things. One word to describe the effect of the fall, God creates this perfect world, sin enters, the word that probably captures the, uh, the problem, the essence of the problem, is alienation. We're alienated from ourselves, we're alienated from God, we're alienated from the creation, we're alienated from each other. Alienation, so, so salvation, the Bible the story of the Bible is God is undoing alienation, and the opposite then is reconciliation. So that becomes a litmus test to ask yourself, what about your life? Are there areas? Go ahead, Janice. Am I reconciled to God? Am I reconciled to God? And everything flows from that. Okay? God is seeking the reconciliation of all things. And again, we live in an already, but not yet world. That work of reconciliation has begun, but it's not yet fully realized. We are waiting for the day when all things will be reconciled. But it has begun, and we'll see that the crux, literally the crux of that beginning work is the cross. We'll see that in a moment. So somebody read for us how that tees itself out in Peter's preaching in Acts 3, 17 to 21. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your, also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Thanks, Dorian. So there you have it. The prophets spoke of, number one, the work of Christ, his death and resurrection. What are you supposed to do in light of that? <coughs> Repent. What comes from the presence of the Lord? Refreshing. Your salvation should, by the Holy Spirit should bring you some measure of refreshing, should bring you a sense of the presence of the Lord. God has come near. In Christ, He's a holy God is saved. 
and heaven has received Jesus, that's a, a reference to his ascension, until the time of the restoration of all things. When Jesus comes again, everything's going to be restored. Again, we are waiting for that, we're hoping for that, and this also the prophets testified to. So basically, everything important you need to know, the prophets said it was coming, it was going to happen. Promised, fulfilled. We've received promises, and we're st- so the whole structure is promise, fulfillment, but also promise, fulfillment. That's, that's how we're... There's a wonderful series of books written by DeGraff. What's his first name? Called Promise and Deliverance, and they're written for, they're written for, for to teach children, but all preachers use them for preparing sermons. Promise and Deliverance is the name of the... Uh, what's DeGraff's first name? Okay, I forgot to graph. That's his first name. Okay. <laughs> so, somebody read then 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Thanks, Jim. So, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and say, what's the will of God for me? Among other things... What's the will of God for you tomorrow? You have a ministry of reconciliation. As God would lead you, as you pray for opportunities, as you love people in the workplace, as you are reconciled to those that you live with, it's a good place to start, right? (laughs) Interestingly, in the Greek, this sentence begins, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The he is isn't in the Greek. Now, Oftentimes it's implied, and that's why a faithful translation like the ESV, all of these are ESV except for one that I stole off the uh, scripture proofs of the Westminster Confession. You'll see it when we come to it. But it's, it's, it's okay to supply the he is, but one of my professors in seminary, Richard Gaffin, makes a really big deal about the fact that Paul is saying, if anyone's in Christ, new creation, he's saying, now that Christ is here, the new creation has started. If you're in Christ, you're part of a new thing God is doing. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered sin. He's conquered the law. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's reigning in heaven. Something new is happening. And the word that captures the newness of this, as far as we're concerned, day in and day out, is the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling all things to himself. Now, this particularly has to do with sinners and morality and whatnot. And, of course, sin infects all of culture, infects all of life, and infects all of society. So we can be called by God to look at the places in culture where sin has done what to things? Fractured them. Disrupt, what's the opposite of reconciliation? Alienated, alienated things. Okay. Colossians 1.20, who would read that for us? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I said earlier that the cross then is the centerpiece, it's the linchpin of God's reconciling work on the earth. 
God has chosen the work of reconciling all things to himself through whom? Jesus. Through Jesus. There's no peace without Jesus. No peace without Jesus. No peace without Jesus. In human relationships, in cultures, right? Just never going to happen. Jesus, in his first, uh, first preaching assignment, it's recorded for us in Luke 4. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. Anybody ever been to Nazareth? You can see the big brow of the cliff that they, we think that they were going to run Jesus off after this sermon. Not a good start to a preaching ministry. You preach the sermon, and they run you out of town. <laughs> Must have been a Baptist church. They didn't consult the elders. First. No, there were elders in that church. We know that, didn't we? don't we? So Jesus was given the scroll for Isaiah 63. Incidentally, was that an original scroll? Of course not. It was probably, the originals were, were written in um, Hebrew. This scroll was probably Aramaic or Greek, but Jesus read from a, from a scroll, from a, from a copy, maybe from a translation. That means it's okay for you to do the same. But we believe our English translate we we believe our English translations taken from our Greek texts are competently exact to the originals. But now I'm giving you the doctrine of inspiration, and that's not what we asked for in this class. So let's get off that tangent. With that sidebar. Yeah. All right. So Luke, who would read Luke four sixteen to nineteen for us? And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's faith. Thanks, Frank. Now, everybody liked that part of the sermon. It's when he, gets into, when he gets into meddling that they want to throw him off a cliff. We won't get into that part, but make some observations about this. What do you notice about Jesus' custom from the first couple of verses? He's a, he's a churchgoer. It was his custom to worship on the Lord's Day, on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And so, he, and so um, everybody in the synagogue is wondering, what is this guy going to say? And he says, go get the scrolls. Okay, where is he going to preach from? Isaiah 61. So here's how Jesus frames his ministry. What can you tell us, someone, about the way Jesus is choosing to frame his earthly ministry from the very beginning? It's dependent on who? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the Father pronounced his blessing on him. You are my beloved son. Okay? And then what does Jesus say about his ministry? What, what's he going to do? Number one. Proclaim good news to the poor. And. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering a sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And knowing now what you know about what the Lord did during his ministry, how would you say he fulfilled that? He did. He did? In what ways? Did he, did he let anybody out of a, a physical prison? Spiritual prison. Spiritual prison, for sure. Anytime a demon was cast out of somebody, the, the, they were experiencing the Lord's deliverance. Okay? 
But what we're going to find out from Matthew 25 is if you did prison ministry and you visited somebody in a real prison, you visited Jesus. So, although Jesus never did that, Jesus never went to the power centers, Jesus wasn't interested in getting to know Pilate, Jesus didn't go to the chief priests and say, I'm here to take your job. He spent most of his time with the disenfranchised, the lonely, the outcast, the Samaritan woman. We're going to hear about her for about 12 weeks this semester. Okay, we can say a lot more about that. The point um, I want to make here is that he wants our lives moving in the same trajectory so that uh, as his, so his glorious manifested concretely on the earth, his invisible reign of grace made visible in his people in the church. So Jesus is manifesting the kingdom. The king is here. The deeds of the kingdom are being concretely manifested everywhere Jesus goes. And the meaning of the kingdom is being taught out of his mouth. And the question for you and me is, if this is the trajectory of the heart of God, this is the trajectory of my life, where are the places of uh, dissonance? Where is the lack of continuity? Is it a question of holiness, generosity? Somebody read them for us. I have them on the handout for you. Holiness, generosity, self-interest. Well, that's the opposite. Just... What's that? Concern for the poor. Justice. Justice. Speaking truth. Say again? Speaking truth. Speaking the truth. Exposing darkness. Exposing darkness, being light, and preserving, you know, from being salt. You recognize those images from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So here you go. So we want want God to be glorified on the earth. Where are the points of... Uh, where am I missing? Where am I not on the same trajectory? Anybody want to speak? Anybody want to confess? <laughs> yes? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Uh, all of the above. That's exactly right. And um, do we view it as an enormous privilege and joy to see our lives more conform with that trajectory? Do we view it that way? Or is it... Uh... So this means our lives are obviously marked by two critical graces constantly. Faith, Jesus, in spite of my failures, you have <clears throat> saved me and forgiven me. And in spite of this glorious thing you call me to, let's bring about change by the same power of the Holy Spirit, repentance. That marks our lives. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. We begin the kingdom by faith and repentance. We move through our lives. Faith and repentance, faith and repentance. That was one of the theses in Luther's Wittenberg door. The Christian life is a continual process of repentance. And that's at the heart of our theology as well. Okay. Or to sum it up in the words of Hebrews 13.20, who would read that for us? What is the writer of Hebrews telling you in this little preface there? The preface being verse 20. What's he telling you? 
In light of what? The resurrection of Christ. You are at what with God? Peace with God. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. In light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your what? Your shepherd. Your shepherd. He's leading his flock. And this is according to the promise of the eternal covenant. Then what does, uh, what does this God want to do? What's the key word there in verse 21? Equip you. How does God, according to Ephesians 4, equip you for ministry? Anybody know? I, I know you know what. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Through his spirit. You can't do anything of value apart from his spirit. What's the official program of the Lord Jesus and his church for equipping ministry? Gifts and instruction. He gave us pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The ministry of Wallace belongs to whom? God, it belongs to the people of God, not the pastors. Doesn't belong to the pastors. Pastors are to equip you for the work of ministry. Am I splitting hairs? You will find the next pastor, Jan, won't you? Trey, won't you? Who else is on the search committee? Raise hands. Rock. You will find your next pastor who is committed to the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry who will join arms with the deacons, with the elders, with ministry leaders. So the ministry that's yours comes to fruition. And that ministry is described as everything uh, good that you may do as well. And that ends up being what in God's sight? Pleasing. Oh, now you have a litmus test. Does this please the Lord? This word, this thought, this action, my giving... My sweeping, my rising, my working, my relating. Does it please the Lord? The God is reconciling all things to himself. Okay, so Jesus modeled what burdened God's heart. No surprise there. He is God in the flesh. That's exactly what we would expect. Somebody read for us this wonderful, what you might call a controlling verse in Matthew's Gospel, saying here's the trajectory of what you're going to be reading about Jesus is doing. Lovely summary verse of the ministry of Jesus. Somebody read Matthew 4, 23 to 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and (coughs) those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from Yahweh. Good job. So when God goes somewhere, what happens? What would you describe that? Good things. Reconciliation. Bodies are reconciled to the way they're supposed to work. Human beings are reconciled to the way God designed them. Our communities being reconciled, 
I don't know. We're going to find out about a city in Samaria named Sychar that had a revival because one woman met Jesus at a well on a hot day. It's just amazing what happened to that city. In fact, I'm not sure I know of any other city mentioned in the New Testament that had a revival beyond the Samaritan city, the city of outcasts. It's the one city that has a revival. We don't hear about revivals in Nazareth. We already heard what Nazareth did to Jesus. Jesus pronounced woes on Chorazin and Capernaum and all those cities because they rejected him. It's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah the day of judgment than those cities. What other city in the New Testament has a revival but the city of outcasts, Samaritans, unwanted, the unwashed, the unclean? It's just glorious. God is reconciling all things to himself. Can you think of one Hebrew word that would describe what is coming as a result of those things? Shalom. Thank you, Catherine. The shalom of God is happening in lives, households, families, human psyches. And notice verse 25. Somebody read that again for us. What's the result of this? <clears throat> okay, thank you. Now, is that surprising or unsurprising? That's unsurprising. I mean, people like a show, a good show. There are going to be uh, people all over the United States, 75,000 strong, cramming stadiums to watch what? The NFL, right? And many more millions on TV. People want a good show, a good show. And uh, look, would you go if you knew there's a man showing up down in... Uh, College Park this afternoon, who's going to heal people and raise the dead? Would you want to go see that? Probably. Now put that in stark contrast to what? The cross. Three years later. What happened to the cross, Janice? He was abandoned, even by his inner circle. Even by his inner circle? They all ran. Granted, his mother is there with a couple of women. Women, women, women get the best showing at the cross. <laughs> they're, they're, they're loyal to Jesus. But where are all these crowds after the crucifixion? At the cruci- where are the crowds? And Christianity begins like a mustard seed, this tiny thing planted in the ground. He just starts with 12, and yeah, for, and we, we see hundreds and thousands converted to Pentecost, but it starts very small. These crowds have dissipated. So it's possible to be very interested in the things God does, but not interested in God himself. Make sure that's not you. <coughs> so here we come to the, uh, our launching passage, which I'll have a lot more to say about as we proceed through the next couple weeks. So I just want to tip my hand there. I'll have more to say about it than at this instance. <coughs> But somebody read for this our passage. It's clearly fulfilling the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Clearly, the allusion to the angels is probably an allusion to Zechariah 14.5. And all the nations gathered to God, probably a fulfillment of Joel chapter 3, 1 through 12. All right, that said, who would read for us our key passage to launch the course? Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also, uh, then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment with the righteous, but the righteous into eternal life. Thanks, Frank. <clears throat> so how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Having heard that. Really? How are you feeling? Okay. Good. You're good? Great. This is an encouraging passage. Good. Any special reasons why? sense of this threatening your salvation. Good. Thank you. Any other emotions? Yes. Well, I think of Laura. the laundries that I have, even just in the past week of passing people on the street to see me, or you know, there's this lady that's always outside of the library, just right across from our house. And you have this inner dilemma of, I get money knowing that like, I don't know what she's going to use it for, and I don't want to Good. So it raises questions in your mind. You immediately want to know how to apply this. And uh, Michael? Obviously context has a lot to do with things, but it's a little conflicting. Reading this, it almost makes it seem like, hey, as long as you do these things, Good to go. Catholicism, workspace, you know, but taking it out of context, obviously, that's what we would see. I don't know. It's, this basically, like, if you do these things, when you get, you know, when you get to the final judgment day, hey, man, whatever you believe is cool, as long as you did these things. So, a superficial reading might seem it works righteousness, salvation is, doesn't it? So, that's a fair observation. Did you see any significant word in the text that would save you from that interpretation? And obviously we know it's not. Everything about the Bible is salvation by grace through faith, right? 
But I, I, I'm sympathetic, Michael. You read this and you go, wow. Is there a word in the text? I think it's verse 34. <clears throat> Find a word in there that says, that assures you this is not a salvation by righteousness. You who are blessed by my Father. Okay. <clears throat> That's getting it at it. And what's the next thing? Kingdom prepared for you. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. What is an inheritance? It is a gift that's yours by grace that comes from a relative. Who's your relative? Jesus. Jesus. By virtue of your identification with Jesus Christ, whatever is his, you will inherit. So this text then is answering what question? What does it look like for a Christian to live in this world? Good. Thank you, Chris. What is the fruit in the life of a person who gets the gospel, who knows that Jesus is their all in all? The fruit of it is, maybe unwittingly, unknowingly, you are doing the same kinds of mercy ministry Jesus did. And I say maybe unwittingly because where's their surprise? didn't realize he was doing it for you. But actually, we reading this now can be safe from that surprise, right? We have the benefit of this parable, and we can say, uh-oh, uh, there's a cup of cold water needed there. I will do this in Jesus' name as if doing it for Jesus, to Jesus. Okay. So the surprise is not the eternal destinies of the righteous <coughs> and the unrighteous. They're not surprised at the proclamation of their destinies. What's surprising is the immediate identification of Jesus with these people least of these. In prison, hungry, thirsty, naked, Jesus is so closely identified with his people. My brothers, this isn't just every sick person and every person in prison. Jesus is identified with those who belong to him. Can you think of a passage in Acts where this is borne out? Someone's conversion? Paul's conversion? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When, and he, boy, did the lights go off. Oh my goodness, when I'm throwing Christians into jail and hurting Christians, I'm hurting Jesus. That's how closely Jesus identifies with his own. Okay, we'll say more about this. I think that's a legitimate observation, Michael. This is not teaching salvation by our works. It is showing that the fruit evident in the lives of those who belong to Jesus are these kinds of things. They have a concern for the least. Because Jesus, well, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Michael mentioned context. I do want you to appreciate the context for where Matthew 25 falls. It follows Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I know, brilliant observation. That's why we sent you to seminary, Michael. Matthew 24 is called the Olivet Discourse because it begins with Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount and all the majestic buildings. And he's got his disciples by his side and he says, you see those buildings? One day not a stone's going to be left. This is like going across to Arlington Cemetery, looking across the Potomac River and pointing out the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, the Capitol, and the Washington Monument and saying one day not a stone of those is going to be left. You wouldn't believe it if somebody told you that. Well, now, post 9-11, maybe we would. Right, since those towers. So Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. 
If you have any doubt how God feels about apostate Israel, read the chapter before it. It is not pretty. And largely the condemnation heaped on the Jewish leaders of Israel is their failure to do what Jesus is talking about in this text in Matthew 25. So this is Jesus' final teaching in the Synoptic Gospels. What do we have in the, the Synoptic for Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John is called, is, is a different gospel. It's in, in his flavor and everything. What's Jesus' final teaching in the Gospel of John? Does it kind of end in 17? They rose from there and then went off, right? Uh, what, what is Jesus, what's on Jesus' heart in 17? Unity of God's people. Prayer for unity. That they be one, even if we are one. That's what it ends. Is, and that's not a public teaching, as it were. That's a private teaching. So is the Olivet Discourse, for all we know. It's just the disciples gathered. But in John, his, his last teaching we have in John 17 is his pleading for unity. Here he's predict, predicting the destruction of Jerusalem because Israel is apostate. And just so you know, this prediction was completely fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman uh, general Titus surrounded Jerusalem and raised it to the ground. The only thing you can see that's left are some foundation stones on the Welling Wall. <coughs> If you've been to the Wailing Wall, people will see you face the Wailing Wall. If you look down here, you can see a few foundations. Of it. That's it. That's all that's left. Uh, and unfortunately, there's this big mosque on, on the uh, where the temple was. And... Okay. Um, so Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. He's put, sitting himself in the role of prophet, calling for adherence to the law of God, priest meeting the needs of the needy and king, he is clearly the judge of the world. Um, one of the questions about the passage, Matthew 24 is really one of the hardest passages of the Bible to understand. Are you all mill? Or, or are you a partial preterist? Yes. <laughs> That's me. Given that passage. I won't get into that, but the question is, it, this, this destruction of Jerusalem, does it serve as a paradigm for the destruction of the world at the end of, the t- end of time? But we have teaching about the second coming of Jesus, and then we have immediately application about the second coming. This isn't just for musing on dates and musing on Middle Eastern movements of armies and does it mean that the end is near. No, Jesus goes immediately to application, and that is, you must be ready, verse 44. And he gives you a parable on readiness. It's the virgins in the land. Some of five of them are ready. They ran out of oil. How could you? The bride's coming. How could, you? How could we not be ready for the second coming? So, Application on readiness, parable on readiness, application on being faithful in the wise servant, and then you got a parable on that with a parable of the talents. Teachings and genius. Okay? He's not finished. Then we move into, well, that raises the big question. Who will enter the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world? Answer, those who know, trust, obey, love, and belong to God. So before we... Um, um, so let's just make sure we're clear on our chronology, because you get a lot of different snippets of, of the end times events, and there's no one place in the Bible where it says, this is where e- exactly each event is going to happen in this perfect chronology. You just kind of have to piece it together, which is okay. Here's what it looks like. Jesus comes on the clouds with his angels in glory. He appears the parousia. He appears in the sky. And at that moment, what's going to happen? Think 1 Thessalonians 4. 
We who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air, changed in an instant as we're being raised in the air to meet Jesus. This this sin, sin-wrecked body will be immediately transformed into a glorified body, but somebody's going to beat you there. Who's going to beat you there? The saints who've died, who are in spirit with Jesus now, will come with Jesus. Their bodies are going to be raised, rejoined to their spirits, and we're all going to meet Jesus in the air in glorified bodies. Okay? Then I think comes the judgment. The dead are going to be raised. We'll see that from John chapter 5. The dead will be raised, and we're going to have the scene that's depicted in Matthew 25. He will gather the nations, in other words, all peoples, and he will separate one from another. And in Jewish uh, culture, the place of the right hand was the place of honor. Incidentally, and you're going to separate sheep and goats, shepherds will tell you that when they call the flock, only the sheep respond, the goats don't respond. It's like a teenage kid. <laughs> Dinner's ready! No, no, I don't know. Goats won't respond. That's what the commentaries tell me. So there's the final resurrection. We have this judgment scene. Jesus sits on his throne. Everyone is judged. Uh, We then go, depart for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's going to serve you at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Jesus. Jesus. That's going to feel awkward. (laughs) We're supposed to serve you. <laughs> the uh, meanwhile, I think you know, at some point in here, it's hard to tell the exact. Peter tells us the earth is going to be burned with fire and immediately recreated into a new cosmos, a perfectly beautiful cosmos, back to Eden, but no possibility of sin. <coughs> Heaven is going to come to earth. The devil and his angels and the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire and paradise will be restored. That's, that's kind of... Have I missed something? Anybody want to throw in anything here that I may have missed? Okay, that's the sequence of events. The great Christian hope, the coming of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Probably a good time to push pause because what I'm going to do next is just march you through the New Testament and show you all the different allusions to the Day of Judgment. Very sobering, very important. How many of you in the last week wrestled seriously with what you did, thought, or said in light of the final judgment? An elder? Good, good, good. We should. And I'll convince you of that. The Word of God, hopefully, next week will convince you of that. Now, as as I move to pray for us, any thoughts? Questions? You'd like any additions? You'd like to. So we sort of we 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 set up the context for our Matthew 25 parish passage. We dipped into it. We made some reflections based on it. We're going to move towards it in more detail. I'll give you more detail next week, as you can see from the handout. We'll march through teaching on the the final judgment. Anything you want to add or say? Yes. Could I just ask for a clarification? I've heard in relation to this passage, some have said the deeds, the prison ministries, the food and all, some have focused more on directed to Christians and churchgoers versus it doesn't matter what they believe, you still need to serve them. Great question. Jesus seems to locate it in how you treat Christians. So judgment is going to be worse for unbelievers who refused help to Christians. 
Judgment will be worse for unbelievers who refuse help to Christians. Are people in this world who've never met a Christian die standing for that? Are they going to be judged for not helping Christians they never knew? No, that wouldn't be just. But clearly the focus is, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers. Those are Christians. Okay. I think we can extrapolate from the importance of showing concern to our brothers and sisters, and we'll see through other biblical teaching, that it bleeds out that these are valid ministries to do for other people, simply to bring shalom to the place in which you live. But the immediate impact is, uh, these people are so identified with Jesus, because they belong to Jesus, that if you did or didn't do it to them, you did or didn't do it to Jesus. Does that answer your question? Joe? Yeah, so kind of big picture here. Um, the Mary is the judgment, but it's one of those things we understand that our sins are judged on the cross, so imputed to him, and yet we're going to be judged. Yes, we'll get to that next week. Good question. You will be judged for everything you do in the body. The Bible says it again and again and again. <clears throat> You will, all right, so you need a diagram. Will you be able to sleep on that for seven days? <laughs> all right, this is, this is where we're going. It's a great question. It's an immediate question that's raised. So, cheat. look at my diagram. There we go. Basically, the Bible says you'll be judged for every good and bad thing. So, believer, will you be rewarded for all the good you've done? Clearly, and I would say most serious believers, that is not their motivation. Their motivation is, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I want God to be glorified in my life. That is the principal motivation. Nonetheless, we are promised to be reward, rewarded for what we do. What about the bad things believers do? Our confidence, the only reason we have hope, the only reason we have joy... As our dear sister said, she has peace and a, a joyful every day. Is Christ has borne the judgment for what we've done bad. We will also forfeit whatever reward was associated with that. So let's suppose Frank calls me and says, Hey, I need your help at the Lower Pregnancy Center uh, on Thursday evening. There's a meeting. Okay, but we, I'm looking for somebody to help me. And I say, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Because I'd rather be playing golf. Um, was that motivated selfishly? We're going to call that sin. I was, I was motivated selfishly. <coughs> sin is where? Nailed to the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not living with fear of condemnation. We're living in peace with God. Or there's no gospel. But I forfeited the opportunity to receive a reward by helping my brother with the law of pregnancy. That's the... That's the way I look at it. There may be a better way to look at it. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah. Just to add to that, to secretly, the thoughts that come in. Yeah. That don't have so God knows those secret things. Yeah. And I guess those all secret things are going to be judged bad. That's right. And that's going to be in one of the verses we're going to look at. The secret things are going to be judged. And every time I have a sinful thought. I have forfeited the opportunity to think righteously. Is that simple thought forgiven? He has forgiven us all of our sins. Yes, that's the gospel. 
But I lost the reward of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay. Now we're. Thank you, Joe. Um, the, the other thing is, um, Chris. From the, I think it's it's also it's also the, the Edwards quote: the Christian is the one who repents of both their bad deeds and their good deeds because they understand that their good deeds are tainted and full of sin. Like there, there's not. So I mean, before you're justified, there's not anything you can do to please God. But after you're justified, you can please God by your obedience. But it's not it's never meriting salvation. Right. Um, and I'll I'll tease out a chart that shows what Chris is saying. And of course anything we do good is because of what? Holy Spirit. The power of Christ and the Holy Spirit anyway. That's why we're going to get crowns. What are we going to do with them? Cast them at his feet. You deserve the glory. He's going to crown you for what you do. And your immediate impulse is to go, no, you get the glory. Okay, let's go give him glory and worship. Can you pray for the Bahama? Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's pray. Lord, here we are in the safety of our our own homes and culture here and for that we thank you and we plead with um, you'd have mercy on the people of the Bahamas get them help um, relief the physical misery the suffering PCA disaster responses there and for many other denominations as well make their efforts expedient please and get food get water get shelter to those who are in the prison of having lost all these things show your mercy convert people through this catastrophe even those watching from afar who, who were spared in such a devastating hurricane. Cause them to know the Lord of the wind and the God who ordains every weather pattern and to fall before your glory and to give you the honor and uh, rightful lordship that you deserve in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.